Hello, this is Grant Bartley uh, from Philosophy Now magazine, and you're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show. Today's programme is entitled The History of Philosophy in Less Than an Hour. I'm here with Nigel Warburton, whose most recent book is A Little History of Philosophy, uh, and Jane O'Grady, who's teaching a course on the history of philosophy at the London School of Philosophy. Um, Nigel's book, as the name suggests, is an introduction to the history of philosophy, and I think it would make a great introduction to anybody who can read properly. Um, so, first, before we get into the history of philosophy, I just want to ask Nigel a couple of questions about the book. Uh, first, Nigel, uh, could you tell us why did you use the format of 40 individual philosophers? Uh, OK, well, the book, A Little History of Philosophy, is in the same vein as a, a bestseller that emerged from the 1930s, unbelievably, uh-huh. which was Ernst Gombrich's Little History of the World. He wrote it in 1935, uh-huh. in six weeks. And that also has 40 chapters, incidentally. Oh, right. it, did, it was published in German uh, in 1936, banned after the Angelus, and um, didn't see the light of day again until an, an English translation very late in Gombrich's life at the end of the last century. Well... Yale University Press published it, and they then have spawned a series from it. There's a David Crystal did a, a little book of language, uh-huh. and mine, a little history of philosophy, is the third in the series. Okay, um, what are the criteria for your choice of which philosophers to include and or which to admit, even? Well, I was writing with a brief to write in a way that would be intelligible to an intelligent 14-year-old uh-huh. and not patronising to an adult reader, which is quite a difficult brief yeah. to start with. So I was looking to find philosophers who I think are genuinely important, who are interesting, and would lend themselves to this kind of treatment so that they weren't incredibly technical writers necessarily or, or their philosophy could be summarised. Uh-huh. So I followed this arc from Socrates uh-huh. through to Peter Singer, the contemporary Australian philosopher. OK, I don't think we're going to be able to cover all of them, but we're going we're gonna to divide um, the history of philosophy into three sections, the ancient world to Descartes, Descartes to probably Nietzsche and Nietzsche to now, and hopefully we'll be able to say a little bit about each section. So first we're going to start with the ancient world, really, which is Socrates, Aristotle, uh, maybe all the way up to Augustine, Aquinas, these sort of things. But I want to ask you, Jane, uh, what, who is your uh, favourite or most significant philosopher from this uh, period, the classical... The, you know, two, Classical period means probably about 500 years BC in Greece, coming up to about 300... Well, I'd like to say two and cheat. I mean, they're, they're uh-huh. fairly obvious ones, Plato and Augustine. Right. They're at opposite end of the time scale that we're talking yes. about here. So uh, why would you say that they're significant for the history of philosophy? Well, Plato, I mean, it's, it's very, very famously said that, that all philosophy is footnotes to Plato. Uh-huh. And um, he did, in fact, really, he was key at asking the most important questions and, and sort of setting up the... the well, the, all, the, all the questions that were going to be asked for the next, uh, that are still being asked. Like and, what? Give me an example. Well, uh, for instance, how is it possible that we can call by the same name things that are completely different? Dog, look at all the different sort of dogs. Red, look at all the different shades of red. Mm-hmm. And this, which we now call the problem of universals, he answered with his very famous theory of what used to be called the ideas mm-hmm. and is now called the forms. And And... It's, you know, as with so many things in philosophy, um, philosophers say very silly things in a way. It's, it's clearly absurd, and yet it's, it's 
got something in it that has kept people absolutely riveted for centuries. Okay, um, Nigel, what about you? Would you agree that Plato is prob- the most significant? Well, Plato is probably the best writer. He's an amazing uh-huh. writer. He he recorded dialogues or 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 created these literary um, interpretations of what Socrates allegedly said okay. to people in the marketplace. I mean, my, my favourite philosopher of this period is actually Socrates. Okay, who was, let, let, who me, was, just, um, let me just teacher. give the link. Yeah, the link here is that Socrates was, uh, went around the Greek, the Athenian marketplace, asking awkward philosophical questions of the, uh, the nobles, and Plato was his pupil, and he wrote down, allegedly, Socrates' dialogues with these people in what are called the dialogues. So... Uh, why why do you prefer Socrates over Plato, please, Nigel? Well, there's several reasons, but so I think philosophy really begins with with Socrates. Uh-huh. This is somebody who is asking difficult questions. He's not taking anything for granted. Now that could just be really irritating, and it was irritating. He saw himself as a, a gadfly, a kind uh-huh. of horsefly, biting the great um, horse that is Athens and stirring it, and. Um, the, po- the point was... So he's a political he, agitator. Well, he was a political agitator. He was also uh, put to death, uh-huh. possibly because of political involvement uh-huh. and, and, I mean, for allegedly for corrupting the youth of Athens and worshipping false gods. But for me, the essence of what Socrates is doing is refusing to take truth by authority and examining what people really know and discovering in the process that he was wiser than anybody else around him. Mm-hmm. This is what the Delphic Oracle allegedly said, you know, the yeah. wisest man in Athens. Who is it? It's Socrates. Socrates wouldn't believe it. But then he came to realise that other people profess to know things, like a, a, a soldier will know what courage is, or um, uh, somebody else will know about what, what moral goodness is, they, they think. But under questioning, they collapse. Yeah. So what he's doing is showing the limits of wisdom, the limits of knowledge, and recognising his own limitation, that kind of humility, as well as the arrogance of the challenging, is okay. the essence of philosophy for me. And okay. I think also he, he, he sets up a, a form of philosophical argument in which, you know, a, a question is asked, what is, let's say, knowledge or, or courage? And then people barge in and say, oh, it's this, it's that. And he immediately offers counterexamples, mm-hmm. examples which actually are contrary to the definition. And then people have to think, oh, actually, I can't be right. And, and then, then they start coming up with new things. And what's great about his, the, the dialogues in, that, that Plato records of Socrates arguing with people is that actually they always end inconclusively. Uh-huh. And it's that process of questioning dialogue which is crucial to philosophy. It may not uh-huh. be apparent. There's this vision of a philosopher as somebody with a long beard sitting in an ivory tower, uh-huh. conjuring up ideas from their mind. But actually, in reality, almost every philosopher gets their ideas, refines their ideas in a social context uh-huh. through having their, their views challenged and, and um, refuted in some cases, and then they come back with a better version. The only, the only trouble that I'd say about uh, Plato's dialogues is that there are some of them that are frightfully irritating in, in in the way that people sort of say, um, you know, Socrates, who is Plato's mouthpiece, uh, will say something, and everyone's saying sort of, yes, Socrates, yeah, no, Socrates, three bags full, like Socrates. That. You know, they, they, it's, it's, it's very annoying. You feel, actually, he could be challenged more. Suspect, not, by, not by his pupil who wrote down his dialogues. No, well, I suspect the real Socrates didn't get such nice answers coming yeah. back all the time. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask, though, I mean, it seems to me from what you said that the important thing is not the answers that he gave necessarily, but the method he used or the, the persistent doggedness he, he undertook to 
explore these questions. Well, it's also that he was asking yeah. the central question. For him, the central question is, how should we live? Okay. And that relates to our view of what the nature of reality is, which was the central question for him as well. So that's your central philosophical him, question. Is well, that's how the most basic question, how should we live? Uh-huh. And, and that, that takes in metaphysics, the nature of reality, because if there's a God, we might behave differently from if there isn't. If we live in a, a world which is somehow illusory, then we need to find a way of getting a better way of getting at the truth than the one we have. But I, I think actually that maybe the key question is, what is the truth? Mm-hmm. You know, both in general as a huge metaphysical thing and also what is the truth in a particular situation and about a particular subject and also how can we know it i think there's always that 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 thing in philosophy which is which is so undercutting and brilliant which is okay you know you think this this is what the case is but actually how can you be sure how can you know it's always that 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 question of well, you can't be sure. There's appearance and reality, and how do you get hold of reality? But it's also the spirit mm. of, of thinking. He said the unexamined life isn't worth living. Okay, who said for a that? Plato or Socrates? Well, Socrates okay. is, is re- repeatedly said it. And the idea is for a human being, the unexamined life isn't worth living. It's okay for cattle, they don't have the capacity for thinking about reflecting on the nature of their lives. But human beings have that capacity, and we get this one opportunity to think about how things really are. If we take things on trust, if we don't really think about them, we end up just parroting other people's views. Okay, so this is the start of philosophy is the beginning of this philosophical questioning method. It's the beginning of asking all the big questions, uh, and especially ethics and um, metaphysics, the nature of reality, you would say. And would you say that it's those two areas that have really um, consumed philosophy in the West since Socrates, or are there other areas that have come into play since then, either of you? Well, obviously, another major area of philosophy is aesthetics, judgments Uh about beauty, judgments Mm. about art. But traditionally, metaphysics, ethics and political philosophy and aesthetics are the main focus of philosophy. But that encompasses just about any reflective question you can ask. The nature of reality takes in what has become science... Um, takes in all kinds of philosophy of religion as well. It, it's such a general idea that that it doesn't really refine the subject matter very much. Okay. Um. Yes, because I think that that's, that's one of the things. It's very much sort of up for grabs. What is the nature of reality? Especially with the pre-Socratics, the people before Socrates mm-hmm. and continuously. You know, reality could be what we now call mental. It could be or spiritual. It could be physical. It could be it could be anything. There's there's always that that possibility that that you're not you know you're starting in the middle of nowhere in an abyss. Okay. Well, uh, we're going to be in the middle of the philosophical abyss in a few minutes when we sort of move it on from the classical period to. Uh, the early modern period, I suppose. But right now we're going to listen to Alan Stewart, who's a London-based Scottish singer-songwriter, and he's playing a couple of songs with us tonight. Uh, If you like like the next song, his uh, website is alanstewartmusic.com, and I think this is called Time Waits for No Man? No Man. Okay, take (laughs) take it away. Don't wait for me 
don't wait for you Don't wait for your skin Don't wait for your hair Time's got no patience They really don't care You're pushing a deal, it's all work, it's no play You know it's gonna take some time Just remember Time's the bottom line Every minute, every day Time's gonna make you pay At a moment in the week It ain't got time to speak At an hour in the month You're gonna hit that crunch Cause time waits for no one Thanks, Alan. That was Alan Stewart with Time Waits for No Man, and it's alanstewartmusic.com. Um, this is Grant Bartley on the Philosophy Now radio show. Uh, we're talking a little bit about 
aspects from the history of philosophy. Um, I'm here with Nigel Ward-Burton, who's written A Little History of Philosophy, which is out now, and Jane O'Grady, who's teaching A History of Philosophy at the London School of Philosophy. We've talked a bit about how the Western idea of philosophy got started in Greece with the the Socratic method of questioning and the topics of ethics, which is how to live, and metaphysics, which is what is the nature of reality. Uh, We're going to move on to uh, what is called the beginning of the modern period of philosophy, which starts with René Descartes in, I think, the 16th century in France. Um, um, Either of you, I I just want to ask, why is René Descartes called the the father of Western philosophy? What did he do that was so new and seminal, and why did he do it? And, And why did he need to take this philosophical break from the past? Well, the thing about Descartes is that between Socrates and Descartes, there were a lot of medieval philosophers uh-huh. who tended to the view that um, whatever Aristotle said was true. Right. This is a crude, <laughs> um, uh, a crude version called, of history. That's called the scholastic period. So, I think, okay, so there's a lot of um, interpretative work mm-hmm. that doesn't involve the same. This is a caricature, but it yeah, right, didn't sure. involve the same kind of radical starting again. Descartes starts thinking, well, what can I, take, what can I know for certain? He doesn't say, what did Aristotle say right. was the truth was. He starts thinking, what can I know for certain? So he wanted a yes, clean he, break. Yeah. And, he's, and he says that, in fact, if, if, if you take the authority of Aristotle and Plato, you're just doing doing history. You're not yeah, doing philosophy. Right. I mean, you, ha- you have to... And, and there's a wonderful bit where he says... Um, that the everyone thinks that that they have that they're intelligent. Everyone thinks that they've got enough common sense. Uh-huh. They don't envy anybody else for that. Yeah. And in a way, he's being satirical. But in another way, I think he's saying, actually, if we really concentrate and use our reason, yes, we can get at truth. We don't need these mediators. And and it's funny, of course, he was a Catholic, but but yeah. but in a way, he's following that Protestant line of saying we don't need the big guys, the men in dresses, between us and truth. Mm-hmm. So what was new about what he was doing? Well, it wasn't very new. He was actually resurrecting a certain kind of sceptical argument mm-hmm. that was popular in, in the ancient world. Okay. Uh, so he was, he was saying, what can I know for certain? Do I trust the evidence of my senses? They sometimes deceive me. You shouldn't, you shouldn't ever trust mm-hmm. something that deceives you. So you can't, you can't be sure that, uh, for instance, what you see in front of you is really there. You could just about be mistaken. So he came up with this notion that we now call Cartesian doubt. It's mm-hmm. an extreme sceptical method, not because he wanted to end up with this position mm-hmm. of um, uncertainty, which some sceptical philosophers in the past were happy with. Yeah. He wanted to preempt that. He wanted to take, it, he wanted to take the strongest sceptical arguments and show that you could still get beyond them and prove something for certain. Yeah. So I, think, I think also it was, it was very important that he redrew the boundaries of what counts as the mental and the physical. He actually sort of scooped into the mental, not just the sort of intellectual type stuff, the spiritual stuff, but also things like sensations mm-hmm. and, and willing and, and things that, that, that before... So he, he rewrote those boundaries. And I think, therefore, I am is so important. I mean, people at the time said, why can't you say... Ambulo ergo so my walk, therefore I am. Aldous Huxley said, mm-hmm. why can't you say caco ergo so my shit, therefore I am. The point is that all those things you could dream about doing or hallucinate mm-hmm. doing, but it's your actual thinking, your hallucinating, your being conscious that is the 
crux of the thing. It, it yeah. shows that you at least must exist in some form. Whatever not else that, is true, there must whatever be Whatever else thought, is true, yeah. and you might not actually be existing as a body. I mean, once on, on, on in, uh, taking drugs, I had that feeling, maybe nothing exists, but I couldn't escape myself. I went ticking and talking through that experience. Okay. And I might, and I was worried that I had no body, Saved that I was in the Rene Descartes. <laughs> <laughs> but the trouble is, you still don't know what you are. You, know, yeah. you just get there is something, and whatever it is. That's true. And, and then he has to bring in God uh-huh. Uh, yeah. to get it, to well, get he's a good Catholic, that, so. isn't he? But I, um, is it true that he redivided the philosophical landscape and re- reset it to zero or something like that? Well, the way that Descartes is influential in philosophy is, is typically now not so much with his sceptical arguments but with the, the clear division between mind and body, uh-huh. which he thought interacted naively he thought through the pineal gland uh-huh. but his point was that there is this physical stuff and there's this mental stuff and they're very very different and that's a view that a lot of religious people still hold today yeah okay not but just religious people by the way i really object to that well mostly religious people <laughs> i'm not religious and I okay don't. okay look stop bickering um, i don't want to arguing from a single case ne- in school not bickering <laughs> next uh apart from descartes i mean what which other philosophers do you admire or whose thoughts from this period do you like? My favourite philosopher of all time, probably Socrates okay. aside, is uh, David Hume, okay. the great 18th century Scot, mm-hmm. who was a major figure in the Scottish Enlightenment, which was, many people think, the centre of the Enlightenment, actually. It's a really okay. interesting phenomenon in Edinburgh. And for me, the heart of his philosophy is his rigorous arguments about religion. Um, I mean, he was writing at a time where it was actually quite dangerous to be an atheist. He wasn't uh-huh. openly an atheist, but he was examining the arguments that theologians used and showing the flaws in the arguments that were used. So, for instance, with the argument from design, the idea that you can look around you and see mm-hmm. evidence um, of um, intelligent making in, for instance, a human eye. You know, the human eye mm-hmm. seems to be designed for yeah. a purpose. Isn't that a bit like um, a clockwork thing put together by a, a clever divine yeah okay the maker. divine watchmaker yeah well he says well look at look at the evidence a wise person proportions their um, beliefs to the evidence uh-huh. available it's it's probably just as likely that as that uh, a benevolent god made something like that that a, that a team of gods made it why not a team of lesser gods making it mm-hmm. or I mean, if you think about human i think he also said like why not have god try this was like the final result of like several million trials or something yeah, it could have been could have been that he came up with a kind of prototype uh, prototype of evolutionary theory as well. You, and he came up with a range of alternative explanations, uh-huh. each of which was just as probable as the idea that a benevolent god had made. Okay, this thing. I think um, I think also what's important about him is he called himself a, a mitigated he, that he, he said that he went in for mitigated scepticism, mm-hmm. and um, he is you know he is a sceptic. He dismantles everything, even the self. He says is actually there isn't such a thing as the self. We're just sort of drifting sensations and and perceptions mm-hmm. and so on. But at the same time, he's deeply humane, and in a way you could say mm-hmm. that he more than is <laughs> okay humane. But 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 he's he's. As much the father of modern philosophy, if not more than, than Descartes, because he is demoting reason. He's saying, he's saying, look, actually, animals have reason just as much as us. He's, almost, he's almost Darwinian. Surely animals don't have reason. Well, reason languages, abstract languages, necessarily. I look, I quite reason, agree right? with you. I quite agree with you. And, and in one way, of course, he, he knows that. But, but, he, but he thinks that the animals like us, he has a very strange idea about causation, uh-huh. are, are sort of driven to make cause, sort of causal connections. They act as if what's happened okay. before is going to happen again. 
Okay. So I, th- I mean, I think the key is that he sees us as extensive. Sorry, we're, we're part of the natural world. That's, mm-hmm. that's what he's saying. We're part of the natural world. Mm-hmm. And actually, reason is the slave of the passions, as he put it. Mm-hmm. He's not, although he's what a philosopher. What does that mean? Well, it means that um, what your desires are mm-hmm. is given by your emotional feelings. It's not that, that reason yeah. solves everything. There's right. a picture of humanity where your, your, your logical part is, is in complete control, but that's not what he's saying. But, but I think that's partly... He, he's saying that in the context of morality. He's saying that actually what, what drives morality is... And passions then didn't mean... It meant sort of more emotions, not the mm-hmm. sort of strong sort of stuff yeah, that we think of passions But beware of mistranslations of old Yeah, text, yeah, right? exactly. But, but, um, but he's thinking that, that, that morality should be driven by... And is driven, in fact, by compassion. But I'm, inter- I, I'm so interested, t- both of you, why, why are these arguments, do you think, so interesting or central to the history of philosophy? Because they seem quite peripheral arguments compared to... What, arguments to, about the existence of God? Well, it could be taken as peripheral if you want to say... You compared know, to what? Compared to, you know, how can I be happy or what is the nature of reality? Well, well he deals with both yeah. of those too. Yeah. Those mm. are questions he definitely deals with. But yeah. apart from that, I mean, one of the things that makes him very endearing is not just that his personality is interesting but he was a great writer uh-huh. yeah. and he wrote the treatise his, his first book and it famously fell dead born from the press nobody was interested mm-hmm. in it and rather than arrogantly just saying well that's their problem he took it upon himself to rewrite it in a, in a, in a style that was more accessible yeah. to the general reader mm-hmm. and he also wrote essays which were deliberately popular essays which and is he's stylish. funny as well yeah. he's funny well there you go you Budding philosophers, be funny in your writing. Okay, any other um, philosophers from this, uh, from uh, let's say Rene Descartes onwards till about the 20th century that you sort of either of you'd want to single out for special acclaim? Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Well, let's d- perhaps do Nietzsche later. What about um, I don't know? There's Kant. There's Schopenhauer, uh, Hegel. None of these guys really. I prefer Rousseau actually. Rousseau. To those. Uh, Rousseau is a fascinating character. Okay. Um, completely paranoid, but uh, in in his. Um, Challenging of the of the preconceptions of his age, where where in the Rousseau was a what about what date was he living? Well, he was he was eighteenth um, century. Yeah, he was alive. In France, he was yeah. actually in he France. actually um, met and fell out with David Hume. They're both eighteenth okay. century. In the in seventeen sixties, he he was brought to England by David Hume, and they had a big squabble uh, that's written about brilliantly in a book called Rousseau's Dog by uh-huh. David Edmonds. Um. Okay, so what's what does Rousseau think? He's he's a philosopher of freedom, I think. Is that true? What does Rousseau think? Yeah. It's a big question. Yeah. Um, one of the things he felt was that you couldn't take for granted that civilization was progress. No. Why, why did he think that? I mean, he's, 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 he, I mean, people always credit that, that term noble savage to Rousseau. Okay. And actually, he never used it, apparently. But, um, but he was very keen on the idea that somehow the corruption, almost the sort of the original sin, was when somebody enclosed a plot of ground. Somebody actually, the divisiveness of society in which there's competition mm-hmm. and possession. And that was what estranged people from one another and, and led to sort of affectation and getting away from the sort of simplicity of... Of, of what he thought to be the natural man. Mm, but if if we started off so great, then why did we move to civilization? But anyway, that's well, that, that's a good point. He he, th- he well, thinks for protection. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's very difficult um, 
when you're competing for resources, not to get into difficult situations with other people competing for resources. Sure, but for me, Rousseau isn't just the, philosoph the political philosopher, uh -huh. which he's remembered for. He's a, he was also a philosopher of education. He wrote Emile, which was all... Actually, he was an early advocate of birth... of. Um, of uh, breastfeeding, uh -huh. which was quite a radical position to take in the 18th century. Okay. But he was also an early autobiographer. Mm -hmm. I mean, his confessions are fascinating. Oh, yeah, sadomasochistic, I believe. Well, that's the one yeah. bit that people quote, but th this is a, um, but he a also symptom of his honesty, in a sense, that mm -hmm. he, was, he wanted to show you everything. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that when you'd read his confessions, you were supposed to know two people really well. That's more than most people go through life knowing. They usually know quite a lot about one person, but this okay, you, you both one. talked about you've talked about to post enlightenment or post enlightenment philosophers. This is uh, when they wanted to exalt reason over tradition. I suppose. Well, yes and no, because the, what's interesting about Rousseau and Hume is that actually, you know, they, they are Hume is part of the Scottish Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. Rousseau is is obviously enlightened but but at the same time they're so keen on the emotions they're so keen well you know that the, 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 the emotions dethroning reason okay and and Rousseau in fact um you know is is so keen on well in one way he interestingly enough when he writes about the natural man in discourse on in inequality he actually thinks that the natural man the man who hasn't been sort of corrupted by society wouldn't have many emotions um, because he wouldn't need them. He wouldn't... I, I think he rather dismissed emotions as being a bit womanish, the way... Well, emotions are dysfunctional feelings. Or yes, something. yes. Mm. But at the but same... That, yeah. That's not the whole of Rousseau. I mean, obviously, no. his thoughts on democracy and the role of um, discerning, discerning what the common good is and what you do with people who uh, don't fall into line... Um, they should be forced to be free. This was quite a, mm. an interesting um, consequence of his philosophy. And he was actually a, a philosopher who influenced Karl Marx, okay. this idea of trying to discern what is for the common good. Freedom. Human beings are fundamentally equal, um, that we have to... Um. We're, we're born free, but everywhere in chains. This is something that resonated for Marx and, and was very important so, to him. So you both like these people because they sort of they prefigure your the modern mind is that right no the point about reading philosophers of the past is that they make you think okay so i love philosophers who stimulate you to think even if you don't agree with them you can think their views mm -hmm. are absurd yeah. but at least you know what they said uh -huh. um, there are lines there which are, are profound there are lines there which seem banal but the philosophers that i love are philosophers who make the reader do philosophy Okay, so even if you don't agree, you're, you're going to learn something. Well, even about more how so if you don't agree, or, because you, uh -huh. you, you clarify what your own thoughts are, which I think is the main reason for studying philosophy at all. It's not just learning stuff okay. from the museum okay, or the history so, of the past. So which philosophy do you most disagree with in your book, Nigel? And <laughs> That's an interesting question. Um, I actually left out one of the ones I most disagree yeah. with. I left Heidegger out. Okay. Um, not least because he was clearly a Nazi, I mean, literally yeah. a Nazi, mm -hmm. but because his style of writing was so obscure that yeah. I felt there was something pseudo-profound about his writing. I mean, there are people who will say, no, no, you have to persevere. There really is something incredibly important there. But I'm sceptical, actually, about And I think it's a great fault in him, not just that he was a Nazi, and I didn't want to endorse a Nazi, but that he was a, such a terrible, terrible communicator. OK, Jane, what about in your when you're teaching the history of philosophy? You presumably have to teach a lot of people that you disagree with. Who do you sort of most disagree with? Oh, God. Well, who, you know... Who, 
who really gets your goat? Did you mean God? Well, Heidegger... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean God, but, but I quite agree with you. Heidegger, I mean, just, of course, one shouldn't be ad hominem. In other words, judge people by their lives, judge uh-huh. philosophers by no, their lives. But no, I agree with just. Nietzsche that, that philosophy is a sort of memoir. And I think you, it, it is indicative that, that, that somebody who, who was a Nazi, who was... Uh, who was able to to sort of think he was good and think he was in touch with nature while allowing these sort of frightful things to go on should write in such an obscure sort of bombastic way. Okay, that was... um, Heidegger is from the 20th century and are we going to take another break for Alan to give us some Sunday dreaming and then we're going to talk a bit about uh, more recent philosophers...
Thanks, Alan. Uh, that was Sunday Dreaming. Um, if you like Alan's music, you can find more info and stuff on alanstewartmusic.com. And uh, I'm Grant Bartley. You're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show. I'm here with Nigel Warburton and Jane O'Grady, and we're talking a little about um, prominent figures from the history of philosophy. Uh, we've, we've seen the birth of philosophy in ancient Greece, and we've seen a bit of development uh, through the Descartes and the Enlightenment. Um, now we're just going to talk a bit about the 20th century and what's been happening there. Um, the most prominent figure at the beginning of which period was Friedrich Nietzsche. Now, uh, this is a question for both of you. Which, With the pro- proclamation of the death of God at the beginning of the 20th century, Nietzsche could be said to herald the modern mind. What are, what are um, modern, recent 20th century philosophies' questions uh, and how did Nietzsche start them and that sort of thing? Well, I, I, think, I think Nietzsche was interestingly sort of Darwinian uh-huh. almost bef- uh, in the way that, that he, and also Hegelian. I mean, Hegel, Hegel was, a, was a stuffy old boy, but, but uh-huh. and, and, and Nietzsche probably wouldn't have liked him, and he was a bit sort of system-building, and Nietzsche okay. hated systems. Hegel, but Hegel was a 19th-century German philosopher. Yes, Hegel was a 19th century. But, and, um, but, but what Nietzsche kept thinking about was the position of human beings in life okay. and in history. And he thought that truth wasn't necessarily a something that they were aiming for, that actually sometimes error was useful. Okay, so that's really the birth of postmodernism, would you well, say? Well, yes, although, although, I mean, I hasten to say that it would be ridiculous to say that, that, that Nietzsche wasn't after truth himself. I mean, first of all, not just because he was doing philosophy, but because he was, he was so sort of screwed up with truth that, that he was always scorpioning round on himself and actually sort of biting his own, his own views. And, well, and, give and, me an example, um, like what? Would he well, well, for instance, I mean, he, he says he, he, in his genealogy of morals, so that's one of the things he's doing. He's not, he's not just saying, you know, oh, let's look at morality as if it's sort of suspended in midair and came from yeah. nowhere. He's saying, how did morality begin, for goodness sake? Uh-huh. And so, so what he says is, well, actually how it began is that we had these lovely, blonde, beautiful heroes who were ruthless and vile and, um, and yet at the same time admirable for him. Mm-hmm. And, they, um, and, and they were completely uncompassionate, completely sort of 
bashing people around, raping them, etc. Uh-huh. And the only way that the weak could get back at them was to say that compassion was, was very, very important and that, that that was the virtue and that these people had behaved frightfully badly. And so um, th- th- these people, th- th- the lower people, who he said among whom were the Jews, um, but he included the Christians, of course, were full of resentment. For some uh-huh. reason he used the French word, resentment. Okay. And they were getting back at the, at the big guys. But then he scorpions back on himself by saying, but of course the Jews are so clever and Christianity was so clever as well. Doing this making compassion this big deal so that people would behave well. So, I mean, he's always sort of dismantling himself as well as everything okay. else. There's a fantastic passage in Beyond Good and Evil where mm-hmm. uh, Nietzsche diagnoses philosophers. He talks about mm-hmm. the prejudices of philosophers and says, where do the philosophical ideas come from? Take a philosopher like Kant. You know, by the power of reason, he's, he's supposedly churns through with his logic and comes out with conclusions about how people ought to obey the moral mm-hmm. law. But Another eighteenth-century general. Uh, yeah, philosopher. if you look at him closely, I mean, he's a he's a certain kind of Christian mm-hmm. um, thinker. Certain, you know, that, that what a surprise that the power of reason takes him exactly to the position that he would have been in where he started. Yeah. You know, it just rationalises yeah. his prejudices. Well, I think and that's there's what a sense in which all everybody does, right? Well, that wasn't obvious to everybody. But he tries not to. And, and tries so he's, not to. he's giving a psychological analysis of where philosophers get their ideas from. It's not as if we are just rationally yeah. arriving at truth like some kind of machine. There is a, a drive that's an inner desire. I mean, he says it's often a sexual desire mm-hmm. as well. That he, he was it's a, it's a will, for power, will to power, I think, is the Well, the, the trouble with the will to power, most of the stuff about the will to power comes from his sister's um, rehashing of his notebooks, so okay. it's quite difficult to... To see to what was the original that, Nietzsche. But, yeah. Okay, um, I mean, there's lots of uh, figures that listeners would have heard of from the 20th century, like Sartre and Wittgenstein, I suppose. I mean, I think existentialism is probably something that we ought to have a quick look at. Um, Sartre, um, why is he famous? Well, he was a, he was a major figure of the 20th century, not just uh-huh. as a philosopher, but as a, a novelist, a playwright. Uh, he even wrote a screenplay for a, for a film about Freud that wasn't made. But okay. um, he, he was a political spokesman. He was on the barricades in the 60s. I mean, was, he was a major figure. But his existentialism made him famous. Okay. Um, he didn't well, like that. What did, that, what did it say? Uh, well, what was his, crudely, what he begins it? from the idea that human beings have no nature. There's no God to give us nature. Right. And it's not part of, we're not part of the natural world in a straightforward way. We actually are fundamentally free, and we create our own natures, each of us. Uh-huh. And for him, we act as if the whole of humanity is watching us. So when I decide to do something, that's not just a choice for me. If I'm sincere, I'm saying, through my actions, this is what all human beings ought to be like. This is the anguish of freedom. So he substituted so humanity for God in the moral look. Well, he thinks that human beings have a desire to become like God, mm-hmm. which would be to become like something which is both free and also has an essential essence. Okay. But, but actually, he's saying human beings, for human beings, existence precedes essence. That is, we first of all exist and then define what we are through what we do with our lives. But he's a great philosopher yeah. um, for, for, for getting at people who make excuses mm-hmm. because he thinks that most of the time, most of us are in what he would call bad faith, yeah. a certain kind of flight from freedom. We deny the choices that are available to us because it's more convenient to live this... Um, 
life off the shelf, as it were, but actually all of us are fundamentally free. We, can do, we can't do whatever we, we want to do, mm-hmm. and we have our facticity, the things about our lives which we can't change, like who our parents were and um, how tall we were and so on. But we can change the attitude that we have to those things. Okay. He felt we were responsible even for our emotions. Yes, exactly. He thinks we can, we, we can even choose our emotions. He's very, very strict mm-hmm. about that. And he's, he would be against all this sort of weepy American stuff. Um, and so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so he actually thinks that our emotions are a way we magically transform the world. It's a sort of, it's a duplicity in us. It's, it's a dishonesty. He's got too extreme a view of human freedom, don't you think? Yeah. Uh, well, he was, I mean, many of his ideas about freedom were crystallised in occupied Paris. Okay. So, you know, he, what was most important there was freedom. Everybody was obsessed with freedom. I think also he, he's, 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 a, he's a frightful old misogynist, Sartre, and I think he takes it very much from a male point of view. Mm-hmm. And therefore he doesn't realise that but actually you know, all this idea about, you know, pe- being able to choose yourself and so on, men can do that much more easily. Women are embodied as far as men are concerned. But Simone de Beauvoir, his, yeah. his long-time partner, wrote about this in The Second Sex. Yes, and talked so about he was with a, he was a, with a radical a feminist, so... Yes, but, but, she, but she betrayed her radical feminism. Uh-huh. What, by, 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 by shacking com- up with Sartre? Well, no, 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 not by shacking up with him, but by compromising all the time. If he, if he slept with a woman, she'd try and not bustle in there as well, and I don't think it's, it, it was out of sort of sheer desire for the woman. I think she wanted to always sort of keep a check on him, and yet she uh-huh. surrendered to him. That's a judgment on um, Simone de Beauvoir's life, I think. <laughs> yeah, um... Well, she was very... Uh, OK, we haven't really mentioned any women philosophers. Why don't we say something about Simone de Beauvoir right now? Uh, what influence did she have on the 20th century as a philosopher? Well, partly through Sartre, because actually he didn't give her enough credit. I mean, she read and edited everything that he wrote. Mm-hmm. She was incredibly helpful to but him. But her, in her own right, she wrote The Second Sex, which I'm sure is a very influential feminist text. Um, as an well, she's a novelist and playwright as well. Uh-huh. You know, she's, yeah. she's, she's, she's a, a literary figure like Sartre was. And not bound, like Sartre, not bound by the expectations that you just do one thing. I mean, she, she chose to, to write in many different genres. Okay. But I mean, she's important as a, uh, an early feminist. But there are philosophers that predate her who uh, could justifiably be called feminists, including John Stuart Mill, the great 19th century oh, yeah. utilitarian okay. philosopher who wrote this, the book The Subjection of Women. OK, look, um, I, we're really running out of time. So I've got a couple of questions, just general questions. Do you think there's a pattern or a trajectory to the history of Western philosophy? And if so, what is it? Um, I'm not Hegelian. I don't think there's some inevitable unfolding of history in a particular pattern. I think there are lots of people called philosophers. What I think is happening is that everybody who thinks deeply about questions about the nature of reality Uh is themselves a philosopher. We are all philosophers when we ask ourselves questions like, does God exist? How should I live? What's right and wrong? That makes everybody a philosopher. I guess what I'm asking, one of the things I'm asking is... uh, has philosophy learnt anything over this long process? Philosophy of isn't a person; years? it doesn't have a consciousness. You don't, you don't <laughs> think? I mean, but sure, uh, physics improves, biology improves the, uh, within parameters. So, can't philosophy have said to learn? Well, philosophy's I, I, history gets bigger. And I think it's learned too that, that, that language. Ideas. I think it's learned about the importance of, of language. That it used, the philosophers used to think that language was transparent. You could just sort of look through language at the world. They, they realised, you know, with partly with Nietzsche, then with Wittgenstein, that actually language itself has a huge position in 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 the, in the way we actually conceive things and perceive things. Well, it's the lens through which we see the world, so we better know how it's focusing our view, right? Well, sometimes it is a bit clouded by. 
um, woolly language by uh, people who, who pretend to be profound but are actually quite shallow, uh, but take people in with a kind of jargon that, that seems incredibly complex and deep but actually is superficial and meaningless. Okay, so my last question, I guess, is where do you think philosophy is going to go from now? What's it heading towards? What's it trying to solve? Well, I hope that, that there's a book just been written recently which is a, a compilation of essays. It's called The Waning of Materialism. I hope that, that this r- ridiculous sort of scientising of yeah. everything is going to cease. Mm -hmm. I think we're just going back to the basic philosophical question of how should we live? And a lot of the philosophical debate that that's that's going on is outside of the academy. There are people who genuinely want to answer questions about about how society ought to be organised, how people should behave to, towards each other, and they're actually engaging with philosophers, but in a in a popular space, not in a, a philosophy lecture or in a in a university. Okay, and that's a, that's a good point to say. Well, I've been speaking to Nigel, who you just heard, and his book is a little history of philosophy. But I know you've got like podcasts and websites and stuff. So, do you want to say a little bit about that, Nigel? Well, with David Edmonds, I make this podcast, Philosophy Bites, which uh-huh. we release every fortnight free on okay. the internet, www.philosophybites.com, yeah. or probably easier to get it on iTunes. Right. Uh, and I'm also involved with other f- podcasts, but that's probably the main one. Okay, and what's your website, nigelwoolburton.com? Uh, I do have that one, or... Um, there's a little history of philosophy.com if you want to find out oh, yeah, about that's, that. That's There's the book, guys. 40, 40, the history of philosophy in 40 essential Western philosophers. Uh, and Jane, you've, you're, you're teaching the, the history of philosophy, but you've also got a course on the philosophy of love. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Yes, I mean, th- th- that's part of my um, sort of crusade, actually, mistaken word there, rather unfortunate, um, to. to um, Denaturalize to to de-scientize um, philosophy to say you know that, that that love is something that but it's a sort of it's like the ontological argument it's sort of we 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 pull we pull, <laughs> we pull we pull ourselves um, out into reality as as sort of as loving creatures. Okay, well that's sort of a summary. But what I meant what I meant was uh, yeah. how could people sign up to any of your courses if they wanted ah, to. Ah, right. Well, they can, they can, they can go on to, on to London School of Philosophy on, on the... They can Google that, and then from there, they, they, there are all sorts of ways they can... I um, can't remember them, actually. How, 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 that they can Google sign up London School of Philosophy, guys. Yes. And, and my Philosophy of Love course is, be, is better than the rather sort of diffuse way that I spoke about it just now. Okay. I just um, to say that I'll be speaking at Blackwell's bookshop in Oxford on the 11th of October, speaking about A Little History of Philosophy, which is published by Yale University Press. OK, and come and buy a book and get it signed by Nigel. OK, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, which I urge you all to buy. And uh, there's also a Philosophy Now forum, which you can go on if you go to the website, which is .org. My books are The Meta Revolution and Love, Solitude and Destruction. And... Um, Next week, we've got John Holroyd and his pupils talking about um, ethical issues. 